0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be now and always acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. This is the second Sunday of Advent, a season in which we prepare ourselves to remember the first coming of Jesus and we anticipate the second coming. Today I want to think with you about this second coming and how it affects our present lives. One place to start is by thinking about God's relation to time. This is a deeply difficult matter, and Christians have disagreed with each other over the centuries. Peter says that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. We can learn from this that God's relation to time is very different from ours. We experience time sequentially. One hour and one day and one year after another. How does God experience time? Or is God not in time at all? There is one venerable tradition that I accept, and it received its classic statement in Boethius. He makes the contrast between timeless eternity, which only God enjoys, and endlessness, which Plato thought the world itself possesses. Eternity, is the whole, perfect, and simultaneous possession of endless life. The whole, perfect, and simultaneous possession of endless life. Endlessness is perseverance in time. So that if something is endless, it exists at every time after its beginning. And in our text, Peter is denying that the world is endless in this sense. So Plato is wrong. The world will come to an end. And as far as we can tell from the current state of cosmology, that is true. Our solar system will die a death of heat, as Peter says. But on this classic View of Boethius, God is not endless, but eternal. And this is to say that God, to God, all times are present in an eternal now simultaneously. This is not to say that the sequence of time that we experience is unreal, but it is to say that God knows all of it at once. One way to picture this is by a spatial metaphor. You can sit on a high mountain and look down at all the villages in the valley below simultaneously. In the same sort of way, God can look at what is past for us, what is present for us, and what is future for us all together. And God then chooses. An hour within our time, as Joe Rose was saying last week,
1: to manifest eternity, as when Jesus
0: knew that his hour had come. This means that God already knows the day of God that Peter describes, even though we do not, and even though for us it comes like a thief in the night. So, we can think of these two domains of time and eternity. Around God, so to speak, are the blessed in heaven and the faithful angels. I speculate that they live in a new time, one not measured by the sun. And then we can think of the day of God as the breaking through of one domain into the other, of eternity into our time, and eternity taking our time into full communion with itself. I'm not going to be able to describe for you just what this means, but I think we get glimpses or foretastes of what it means already in this life. I want to give you some examples. Last time I preached to you in Advent, it was in 2017, and Terry and I had just come back from my mother's funeral. I spoke to you about my experience of seeing my mother's dead body in the funeral home two days before the service, and how it did not seem like my mother at all all waxy and made up. And she seemed more decisively gone than she had before. But then I had an experience. And I do not want to make too ambitious a metaphysical claim here, because I do not know how all of this works. But I had an experience of her being with me in the room. Not her corpse,
1: but her. Fully and completely her. And what she was saying to me was, it's going to be all right.
0: I think this is an example of the domain of heaven breaking through into this domain. Of our time. Terry, my beloved wife, as we talked beforehand about this sermon, described how, when the possibility of death was very present to her because of her cancer, she felt the presence of love around her from her family and from all of you, her brothers and sisters in the church. And she felt that this was the breaking through of eternity into time, because this love that came to her was stronger than death and would last through death if death came. Dame Julian of Norwich wrote The Revelation of Divine Love at the end of the 14th century and the beginning of the 15th. The first book written and published in the English vernacular. She was living during a pandemic, a plague, which was decimating her community. And she lived in isolation, in a small room adjacent to a church where she could communicate with the world only through a small window. Despite the pandemic and the isolation, she wrote memorably. All shall be well. And all shall be well. And all manner of thing shall be well. She also wrote of a vision
1: that God gave her. And in this, she said, he showed me a little thing, the quantity of a hazelnut lying in the palm of my hand, as it seemed.
0: And it was as round as any ball. I looked upon it with the eye of my understanding and thought, what may this be? And it was answered generally thus, it is all that is made. I marveled how it might last, for I thought it might suddenly have fallen to nothing for littleness. And I was answered in my understanding. It lasts and ever shall, for God loves it. And so have all things their beginning by the love of
1: God. In this little thing I
0: saw three properties. The first is that God made it. The second is that God loves it. And the third, that God keeps it. the end of the quote the creation of the universe is itself as she saw a formation by eternal love of a new world of time and this world is maintained in that love until it is transformed we can learn a great deal from her in these times in which we find ourselves our god holds the world in his hand in the way that she herself saw herself holding the hazelnut. And that picture itself was an answer that she saw as coming from beyond, a revelation or unveiling of God's love. One more example. I used to work in medical ethics at a hospital, and I spoke with one of the hospice chaplains who coordinated with the hospital. She said that sometimes with her very elderly patients it was as though at the end of their lives they became transparent as though you could see through them to the life to which they were headed. Remember for Boethius eternity is the complete, perfect and simultaneous possession of endless life. I think the chaplain meant that these patients were already transitioning into that life. The walls between this life and the next
1: were thinning. This
0: vision of a better world to come is strong In our psalm for the day, Psalm 85. Surely his salvation is at hand for those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness will meet, righteousness and peace will kiss each other. This again is a vision of how things will be when eternity finally takes the world into communion with itself at the transformation. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Remember, Peter says that in accordance with God's promise, we wait for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home. These two blessings, righteousness and peace, are the two things humans most deeply want. Peace or shalom is not just absence of war, it's the presence of blessing, of rest, of joy. And righteousness is not self-righteousness or mere conscientiousness where someone is continually aware of doing his duty. Righteousness or justice is where all of God's creatures have what they should have of the good things of the body and the good things of the soul so that they are complete or fulfilled. In the new heavens and the new earth, righteousness and peace will kiss each other. And that will be God's glory dwelling in the land. This same vision comes in our passage from Isaiah, the prophet. Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Do you hear the tenor at the beginning of Handel's Messiah? God is telling the prophet to give good news to God's people. God is coming. The penalty for their sin has been paid, indeed, has been paid in double measure. A voice cried out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The engineering aspects of this preparation strike us now as odd. The thought of every valley being filled in and every mountain leveled and all the rough places being made of plain. This no longer sounds like a good idea. Terry and I go up to the northwest corner of Connecticut to a cottage. Next to an old farmhouse built in the 1730s that belongs to her family. And the original owner then built another larger house just up the hill in the 1740s. The strange thing is that both houses have a marvellous view of to the Taconic range. But both houses ignore the view and turn themselves towards the road. They were built before the passion the picturesque which swept europe and the americas at the end of the 18th century before then wilderness was something to be shunned and roads were to be treasured as the access to civilization so when isaiah speaks ill of rough places our ancestors would have understood him but we find it harder But his point is that what is removed are obstacles or impediments to the worship of God. And that when these are removed, all peoples can come together to worship. We have another picture of this in Revelation. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and isaiah adds the lovely words about the good shepherd who gathers the lambs in his arms and gently leads those that are with the young the emphasis on god's comfort is not initially the emphasis of john the baptizer in our gospel passage. I do not say John the Baptist because that suggests a narrower affiliation. John came preaching a baptism of repentance. And we need to face the fact that the second coming brings not only love, but judgment. Kyla talked to us two weeks ago about the high standard that Jesus sets in the parable of the sheep and the goats and Ezekiel in the parable of the bullying sheep. And Kyla confessed that we all fail by this standard, but he emphasized that if we repent, God will release us from our sins. John the baptizer does not in Mark say what the sins are, but he does in Luke. (laughs) And they are all sins against righteousness or justice, in the sense I gave above, where all have what they should have of the good things of the body and the good things of the soul. Luke's baptizer says to his audience, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. I want to make a suggestion about God's judgment. We are judged by the standard of God's law and God's commandments. The law does not save us, and without grace it merely condemns us. But we need it, and without it we stray like lost sheep. And that is why, to change the metaphor, The law should be sweeter to us than honey and the honeycomb. But when God gives the law to us, this reveals God's goodness to us in the way that we can and should imitate it. And when we see that goodness, we say yes to it or we say no. We have that freedom. And the Bible uses the term heart for the part of us that chooses whether to turn towards God's goodness or away. But here is the point. The turning away is already the punishment. Because it is closeness to God that is our greatest good. Isaiah says this already in our passage for today. See, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him. His reward is with him. God's reward to us is to be with God. And God's punishment is to be away from God. And the remarkable thing is that some people in their hearts seem to choose this, though the choice is mysterious. Moses, at the very end of his farewell speech to the people of Israel, says to them, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. For the Lord is your life. So judgment is not, on this view, something extra that God imposes on sinners. It is something that we already bring upon ourselves. C.S. Lewis, in The Great Divorce, imagines that hell is occupied by people who cannot bear to be with God. But this talk of judgment is not John the Baptizer's final word in our passage. The one who is more powerful than I, he says, is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is a reference forward to the key moment when the old covenant is transformed into the new. The key moment is that Jesus gives us the special work of the Holy Spirit, a new power which was not available before. In the discourse in the upper room recorded in John, just before Jesus goes with the disciples to the Mount of Olives, He tells them that he's going away, and this is good for them, because he will send them the Counselor, the Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit, we have the presence of Christ with us, after his ascension
1: to his Father. In this presence of
0: Christ, we have a new power. Paul says in Romans 5, And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. I think this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that John the Baptizer is talking about. Christians disagree with each other about whether there is a separate baptism of the Holy Spirit, a second baptism that we receive after the baptism by water. I personally do not think so. I think there are gifts of the Spirit and fruits of the Spirit that we receive after baptism. And they are forms of the love that the Spirit pours out into our hearts. And I think this work of the Spirit is offered to us in the first baptism. But the point is that this power we receive from God's Spirit is a place where eternity breaks through into our time. It is the power that Terry experienced in her distress, the power that Dame Julian experienced isolated in her cell during the pandemic, the power that some people experience at the end of their lives, who are already halfway into the direct presence of God in their new life, when they will see Christ face to face. It is because we have the Spirit that we do not need to feel that the law which condemns us has the final word about whether our lives can please God. This is why Paul says, Hope does not disappoint because the Holy Spirit has poured out this love into our hearts. This love is the deposit, the earnest, the down payment of what is to come when Jesus comes again. And this takes us back to the beginning of the sermon. Because God is eternal... God's gifts to us have this strange relation to time. The gifts and fruits that we are already given are the breaking through into our time of the complete, perfect and simultaneous possession of endless life, in the phrase of Boesius. So that what we are already given and what we do not yet see Are manifestations of the same love that God has for us. They are manifestations of the same glory. John the Baptizer's last word
1: to us is a word of hope, a hope that does not disappoint.
0: Let's pray. Dear God, We know that we need the hope that you give us. And we thank you for the love that you give us that is the down payment of that hope. We pray that we can use this season to be honest with you about where we have failed and to make room in our hearts to
1: receive your love. In Jesus' name. Amen.